Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. And today I want to get into something that's really very personal to me. I've been fortunate in my life to serve with many, many talented and, uh, and principled people. And one of the most talented and most principled I've been, I've, I've, I've met is a man I joined uh, where I was involved with the Financial Services Roundtable, which was the 100 largest uh, financial services companies. And I was fortunate enough to be on the board with them. And uh, together, we served on the board through the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, 2009, and the aftermath. And it was quite a journey. And you see people's character revolve, evolve or emerge in crisis. And the man I want to introduce you to, John Allison, is just that type man. And John, I'm glad I've known you. And I've wanted to uh, follow up because you've also written a terrific book. Now, by way of background, John ran BB&T for what over 25 years, and took it from roughly three billion assets in assets to 150 billion in assets. After he retired from BB&T, he was an outstanding CEO, chairman of Cato Institute, and he now serves on uh, numerous boards and is author of two books: The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Solution. And the one I want to talk a bit about today is the Leadership Crisis and the free market solution. And I was going a little, doing a little research for this and I, I stumbled across this written in 2014, which was when the book was published and the author is none other than John Allison. So I thought I'd just quote the author. He said, the leadership crisis and the free market cure sets forth a set of principles that is the foundation for human flourishing. The principles are equality, are equally applicable to individual behavior, organizational achievement, and, and societal well-being. These concepts are consistent with the American founders' ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. John, thanks for joining. Well, thank you, Bill. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Now, I have, I've personally enjoyed our relationship over the years, so I'm glad we're getting a chance to do this. Well, and I wanted to bring your ideas out and talk about anything else you've you've got going now. Um, hey, so John, you've got a very interesting personal story. How did John Allison become John Allison and when did Ann Rand enter the picture? Well, Bill, I was raised in a, I call it a lower middle income family. Nobody in my family had ever been to the, the college. My dad worked for the telephone company for a long period of time. Um, I, I uh, was fortunate to get to go to the University of North Carolina and, uh, and uh, got a degree in business there. I, I then went to work for BB&T, which at the time was a really small farm bank in, uh, uh, in Eastern North Carolina. While I was there, I, I was able to get an MBA at uh, Duke University. Um, I, I tell this story because a lot of people enjoy it. When I went, shows my ignorance. I, when I went to the University of North Carolina, I was expecting to get a degree in, in engineering because I one of my counselors, I was good in math. One of my counselors told me I ought to major in engineering. I really didn't exactly know what engineering was, but it sounded good. And and when I, in those days, because of the baby boomers, we, we were in this parking lot uh, signing up. It was in August, it was hot as Hades. 
and I was standing in line sweating and I got invited, you know, up to, to speak. And they said, and the, and the, the uh, registrar asked me what I you know, wanted to major in. And I said, engineering. And, and she said, well, we don't have it here. <laughs> and I showed you how much research I've done. I said, well, what do you got? And she turned <laughs> down the list and she gets the business administration. And my new idea was in business. I said, well, that sounds great. So I'll major in business. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, to some degree, I pursued my career that way, Bill, in the sense that yeah. I tried to do whatever I did really, really well. I was never very focused on getting promotions because I thought if you really did things well, you'd get a promotion. And I was fortunate in, in that the bank did give me opportunities uh, uh, at a relatively young age. But I, but it was, I think, because I was really trying to do whatever it was I did better than anybody else had ever done it. Well, that's sort of my story as well. I mean, I ended up as a CEO, not of a big an organization of BB&T. But the thing, people ask me, well, gee, what was your big ambition? How did you get to become a CEO? I mean, was that, how did you make all that money and all that? Didn't you really have a plan? I said, well, no, I didn't really have a plan. I just took one thing at a time and tried to do the best I could with that one thing. And sometimes I'd take things that even were off the beaten path a little bit just to try something that maybe didn't necessarily right. fit the straight line, but gave me another, uh, another dimension. It sounds like that's what you've done. Exactly, exactly. And, it, and I, the, the, the good thing about that is make, it makes it more fun. If, if you're worried about getting to be CEO, I think you never get there. You're wasting your life. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need to be enjoying your career when you're young, and and, uh, and it's exciting to do different things. And well, you did a, you did a lot of sidebar projects too. I mean, it wasn't just that you went to the bank and you just said, "I'm going to do banking." You were involved in a lot of community organizations as well. I was. I was. Um, one of the organizations that uh, my first son was born prematurely and my wife stayed in the Ronald McDonald house. So we ended up helping build a Ronald McDonald house in Greenville, North Carolina. And she stayed involved with that for many years. And, and I, I was on a workshop for uh, people with uh, mental health and physical problems. And I, I learned a lot being involved and it, it uh, wasn't a sacrifice from my view it was it was an educational experience. Well, and also you talk, we're going to talk a bit about Ayn Rand and her principles and the notion of benevolence or, or altruism. And I, I think the, done properly, it's, it's a win-win. It's a voluntary exchange or you're, you're giving, you, you're supposedly giving something, but you're getting something back. It's a two-way, it's a two-way trade. Right. So, so how did you find, how did you find Ayn Rand? When did you find her? And I stumbled on her by chance. I've always been an avid reader. And I, I read a lot. And, and beyond just what's, you know, in my courses, I, I, I was in a bookstore in Chapel Hill where University of North Carolina is, and I, and I saw a book called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And, and I've been interested in economics, and, and I read that book. What, what was the title? Capitalism what? Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And, and the first chapter is a moral defense of, of capitalism, which I, you know, I was a business major, I was, you know, a, a rising senior. Nothing in any of my business courses had mentioned the fact that capitalism was, in fact, a moral system. <laughs> Nobody bothered to talk about that. 
and it really impressed me. And then I went on from there and I read everything basically Iran had written. So, uh, so, so the title though is Miss, it reminds me of a story that Sarah tells my wife about how she read The Feminine Mystique, which I guess was Betty Friedan's right. uh, you know, manifesto on feminism. And Sarah read it because uh, she thought it would make her more attractive to boys. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you read, you picked up the capitalism thinking maybe this is a how-to and it turned out to be a set of principles that were eternal. Right. And then of course, Rand's greatest book is, is Atlas Rugged, which had a huge impact on me, really, really dramatically impacted my life. Now, did you get all the way through it? I guess oh, you yeah. have. Oh yeah, I read it in a really fairly short period of time. I just couldn't put it down. Because I was, I was doing some work for one of the shows and I, I was got interested in Karl Marx and, you know, Karl Marx is looming very large today. And I went and read the Communist Manifesto. Woo. And well, <laughs> Communist Manifesto is shorter than the John Galt speech at the end of Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but the Communist Manifesto, the man didn't know anything about economics. He'd never been in a factory. He didn't know uh, anything right. about anything. He had all these abstractions like the proletariat. He'd never met a proletariat, whatever that is. <laughs> well, I, what, the reason I was laughing, I read the Communist Manifesto and it just flat made me mad. Plus, I said, I can't believe this book's had an influence this had. I mean, when you Stunning. read it, you go, what? I mean, this guy doesn't know anything. Surely there's better than this. So what did you, you developed 10 principles in your book and let me pull the cover up here. It's, it's on, it's on uh, Amazon, obviously. And it's a, it was a number one bestseller in New York Times in the business um, section as was the uh, financial crisis and the free market cure. And I recommend, I recommend both of them. Financial crisis one, by the way, explains what really happened in 2008, and most people uh, don't know it. So that's that's uh, maybe that's a topic for another show. So uh, ten principles. How did you come to these, and 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 where where do we start? Well, these are really I would call them layman's uh, outline of the principles that Rand puts in Atlas Rug. Uh, uh, so it's really driven. I never tried to impose uh, objectivism as an integrated philosophy on BBT because people have lots of different beliefs. But these 10 principles are applicable to whatever your fundamental beliefs are. Um, and, and underlying the 10 principles of what uh, Rand describes and what I believe are the three great per, uh, 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 virtues purpose, reason, and self-esteem. So you have 10 principles that flow from this idea of, of virtues, virtues of purpose, reason, and self-esteem. And, and so one of the things we really tried hard to do at BBT is create a purpose-driven organization. And we, did, we defined it in our mission, which was to make the world a better place to live by helping our clients achieve economic success and financial security, creating a place where our employees could learn, grow, and be fulfilled in their work making the communities where we work better places to be and thereby optimizing the long-term return to our shareholders. We weren't confused in a free market, your primary fiduciary obligation is to your shareholders. However, the way you really accomplish that, and I think a lot of business people miss this, is by doing a great job for your clients because all your revenues do come from your clients. And you can only do that if you have good people. 
and you train them and give them the opportunity to do what they can do. And you do all that, particularly in a, a bank, in the context of communities. So if your communities don't do well, you won't do well. So we tried to develop this sense of purpose with a long-term concept of doing the right things for our clients, employees, and communities. And that's how you reward shareholders. And our shareholder returns, frankly, were way superior to the industry. Well, you must have been doing something right because you were the only bank that got through the financial crisis without a quarterly loss. Um, yes. I mean, there may have been an exception, but I'm not aware of it. And, uh, and you did it by not getting very far outside your lane, which makes me think about your first principle, which is grounded in reality. And I love this phrase, what is, is. We don't get to yes. vote on, we don't get to vote on reality. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I mean, in some ways, that is self-evident, but it is amazing how much resistance there is to reality in the world. People just don't want to face the facts. And we, out of that, this is really epistemological issue, but related to reality, we said wishing something is so does not make it so, mm -hmm. which is active evasion, which occurs when you're presented with some people's information that you really know not true, but you don't want to face it. Secondly, uh, the belief in popularity. Reality is independent of popularity, and people make a lot of bad decisions because of popularity. And finally, and this is the trickiest one, is the belief in authority. Reality is independent of authority. You have to judge your authorities. And if you look at, say, the financial crisis we were talking about, the authorities were standing towards Moody's and Fitch, right? And they tremendously misrated a lot of financial instruments. And the one reason we went through the crisis with no quarterly losses, we we looked at their stuff and said, wait a minute, this isn't right. And we, a lot of yeah. us had been around in the early 90s when we had another financial crisis, people forget about. But we said, we're not going to do what these people are recommending us to do. Let me take just a quick break here. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with John Allison, the long-serving uh, and highly successful CEO of BB&T. And we're talking about uh, his first principle for leading his organization and, and in life, which is being grounded in reality. And we're talking about ways that people lose, lose that by either evading things or trying to be popular or by uh, thinking some authority knows better than you do uh, what is. So, John, uh, rating agencies. We both had the experience of sitting across the table from rating agencies and you just sort of knew that they didn't quite get what you were about. I mean, I had, I had one, I had one, I had one meeting <laughs> with somebody where we focused on, we tried to focus on industries that weren't cyclical. That is, they went up and down like steel and automotive or, you know, all the different sort of uh, consumer durables. And we tried to avoid other things that had commodity risk. And the, the, the young man from the radio agency looked at me and said, well, you know, you're not diversified across all industries. And I said, <laughs> well, that's because there are a lot of lousy industries. <laughs> we, <laughs> diversity is okay up to a point. <laughs> we had similar kinds of experiences, but I think one reason we were quite willing to reject their recommendations is after you meet with them, you say, these people really don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there were some smart ones, but many of them you wouldn't you wouldn't hire. Uh, you know, I think with with the, uh, the the when we talk about ground and reality, you also talk about the law of causality. And yes. What are you, what's uh, everything in nature has a nature? What's uh, what's that about? 
it says that everything in nature has a nature and everything in nature has to act consistent with its nature. As human beings, we're thinking beings and we survive by our ability to think, uh, to use reason. And you can't avoid that. There's no shortcuts, there's no free lunch. We don't have any magic. People look for magic. I know this sounds silly, but people look for magical solution. And what that caused us to do, Bill, was be very disciplined. And so let's take, let's take uh, acquisitions. We did a lot of acquisitions. We grew our company, you know, over 100 acquisitions, 150 acquisitions. But we got to points where we saw that the acquisition markets were out of bounds. The prices were too high. Yeah. It didn't make any economic sense. A lot of our competitors went ahead and did acquisitions anyway <coughs> because they rationalized. You know, they said, oh, somehow we didn't. We were very disciplined. We had mathematical formulas. We stuck to those formulas and we avoided making a lot of the kind of mistakes that other people did because, you know, we were disciplined around reality, around causality. I mean, the reason you knew that it wouldn't work is you knew that they couldn't causality wouldn't allow them to do what, you know, that, 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 that they claimed they could do or, you know, the market. Well, you ask a question in the book I just loved, which is, do you think our political leaders make decisions based on reality? <laughs> and the answer is no. Unfortunately. I mean, this, 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 this lockdown we're going through now, I think is sort of exhibit A. Yes. I mean, you know, maybe March, April, we kind of knew, well, you got to be careful. You can't do this, but we've now got 12 months of statistics and data and results that we know exactly who are vulnerable, who aren't, and who needs to be locked down and who doesn't. And, and yet we're still acting as if we don't know anything about it at all. And, and one size fits all. And of course, one size never fits all. And that's the way we're, uh, we're governing. You know, I was on two different commissions that looked at these statistics and the facts are overwhelming. For people under 65, this disease is not particularly bad. I mean, a few people die, but it actually, uh, uh, flu's worse for people under 65. And particularly in somebody that doesn't have any pre-existing condition. For people over 65, there's some risk. Well, we could have saved a lot of lives by focusing people over, over 65 and not really doing anything for people yeah. under 65 except let them live their lives. Some of them, a lot of them would have got the virus. And I don't know if you had this experience. I've talked to dozens of people that had this virus and didn't, they had no symptoms. You know, they had no real, they were sick for a day or two, less than the flu. Yeah. And it's, it's tragic because we've done incredible damage to our economy. The thing that scares me is what we've done to education. Think about these kids can't make up. There's certain periods in your life when you learn stuff. And if you don't learn it in that in that time frame, you will probably never learn it. And I really feel for low-income kids because they don't have support at home. They may not have a computer or somebody that really knows how to use a computer. And and they'll never catch up. It's it's tragic. Well, and all these bad policies have fallen disproportionately on poor people. And yes, you know, I had Phil Kirpin in here the other day, and you know, he's done a lot of thinking about this. And you know, the costs of of this are going to be lasting for years and years and years and could be many, 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 many multiples of what the, what the object, what the obvious costs are right now of lockdown, both in the education, healthcare, drug addiction, you know, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the educational year lost is going to have an incredible impact on, on kids earning power. Oh, well, it is. It is. And what's uh, 
tragic. A lot of this, unfortunately, being driven by the teachers' unions. And my feeling is, if you aren't willing to take that risk, fine, quit. But <laughs> but if you're a teacher, you can you go play the game. I mean, that's just like you know, if you're a baseball player, you play baseball, and and, well, and the unions have done enormous. Yeah, and your and your 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 statistics. I mean, kids are. The, the flu, the, act, the, the regular flu is four to five times more dangerous to kids than this virus is, which isn't dangerous at all. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe the good, you know, you and I are not big fans of teachers unions. Maybe they'll overplay their hand now. And uh, I think they are. And uh, I mean, I'm actually encouraged about that because what we've seen is a pretty big burst in private education. Yeah. And this is an opportunity because parents are saying, well, <laughs> I get a lot better outcome. Not only <laughs> uh, yeah. they're open and they're and and uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic that it's a wake up call. Uh, we're we're going to have a hard time getting through all 10 principles at the rate we're going. But you're being, <laughs> you're being very interesting as we digress. The digressions are great. Uh, but I do want to get to a couple of these because they're they're so interesting. Your second principle, and it is 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 reason, um, objectivity, and you're saying we should begin with premises based on facts, and then use induction and deduction to to derive conclusions. I mean, how many people function that way? I mean, isn't that well? well I think. Of course, I do, and you do. I mean, we're we're always. <laughs> I, th I think a fair number of people function that way in kind of a mixed. You know, they don't really think about what they're doing. Yeah. But you, to some degree, you have to think to some degree that way. You you don't have any choice but to do inductions and deductions. What people tend to do is take authorities, and this goes back to the, the first principle. Instead of making their own conclusions. Instead of going through the mental process of asking themselves, really, does this make sense? And what is my life experience? You know, what what have I actually seen in my life that would drive that would lead to this conclusion? Um, so, and and part of mentioning it in the book is to encourage people to think that way. You know, yeah. to do to 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 really uh, look at how things fit together. And, and what can I deduce? You know, if this is, if I have people behaving this way, what, is, what does that mean? What, 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 what have I learned from that lesson? Well, I think you, you, you give it a, a great way to think about it was that, you know, a high IQ may matter or a high IQ may actually hurt you in some cases, but if you just go through the process of, of, of not trying to evade reality, and just focusing, 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 you can get to pretty much the same place as uh, as that uh, induction and deduction formula would uh, would, yes. would lead you. And focus is huge. Yeah, People, unfortunately, live a lot of their life out of focus, and 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 part of that's a form of evasion. But uh, if you, one of the great questions is, do we have free will? And, and to me, there's a self-evident answer to that question is yes, because we have to make our minds focus. And we do that very often. We're doing that during this presentation, but we do it all the time. And um, people do it when they start young. They, you literally have to do every few seconds. And when you choose not to be in focus, not to pay attention to what's going on, you're usually evading something, something that you don't want to back. Now, as a as a CEO, you 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 need to be careful. You can't walk around with your Ayn Rand and no, no, 
pigeonhole people. That doesn't work. We've both been there. That's not a success strategy, but you do have principles and you know they work. Um, you know, one of the taglines for, for this show I'm doing is I try to get at what's true, uh, what really works, and what's moral. And I think if you can answer those three questions, you're, you're leading, you're, you're on the right path to something. And I think your principles are the same thing. How do you, how do you make that part of the BB&T culture? You preach it a lot, <laughs> starting okay. higher up in the organization. Um, what, what we did, of course, we had a uh, management development program. We made a very conscious decision to invest dramatically more in employee education than our competitors did and a dramatically less in advertising. We spent very little on advertising and a huge amount on employee education. We had to be the university. We had lifelong learning. Whatever job you had, starting with the teller line, we had an educational set of experiences that you've been. And, and of course, they got, you know, as they moved up the line, we built our philosophy into those educational experiences. And we made the connection. The, 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 and we, of course, when you're talking to a tower, you do it with a, with a more simple explanation. But towers get that reality matters, you know, and they get, they, get, they ought to be making logical. I mean, that, that's degrading towers if you don't if you don't get that. And so, and of course, when our, you get to the management program, um, I read a serious nonfiction book every month, and I passed it out to our senior leadership team, the top couple hundred people in the organization. They didn't have to read it, but uh, you know, I encouraged them to read it. Um, I did quarterly videos and in every quarterly video, I would talk about our principles and how they related to the, you know, we would talk about what's happening in the business and the economy, but I would talk about how, how the principles related to that. Um, we had a little booklet much simpler than my book called the BB&T uh, uh, Culture Book and, and everybody read the book. They actually took a little test on it uh, that, they, that they had read it. And um, we, um, we really believed it too. We put it, we had a, a, we had a, a semi-annual review of all the employees and in every case, at half the review was performance relative to those 10 principles, those values. And the other half was, you know, did you, make sales or did you, you know, the normal kind of business things. Two, two questions. Did you get pushback from people that said, ah, oh, this is just brainwashing or did people understand it was really good for them? I got pushback early on in my career, but yeah. when it started working, you know, <laughs> and people said, hey, oh, we're making more money. <laughs> it works for bb and and it works for me personally. Yeah. Well, I know. I, well, that's the reason. Yeah, well, that's the reason I admire you so much is you, you have these principles, you stick to them. I, I try to do the same thing. The educational piece, I think people overlook. You kind of end up, I mean, I bet probably one one hundredth of what you know now is what you learned in college. And the rest of it is the self-education you go through every right. week, reading. And, and I, you know, I had a reading list of, of 20 things I wanted everybody to read to, who wanted to be in the investment business to try to get them started uh, with the core stuff. Uh, I guess my second question on, on that one was, has the culture of BB&T maintained itself? Do you think that's in the, in the whoop and wharf? Or, I guess you, there's an acquisition with SunTrust? Yeah, I, I know it maintained it up to them. Yeah. 
that was a pretty dramatic, it was, two, it was really a quote merger of equals. Technically, it was an acquisition by BB&T, but the companies were about the same size, and now they're over $400 billion. So it was a huge deal. I'm not as intimately involved since that merger take place, so I don't know really how to judge it. But I do know the culture survived very clearly up to that point. And I've had many BB&T employees tell me the reason we went through the financial crisis without any quarterly losses was nothing to do with our genius and making loans and stuff, but we had this value system. Well, I think the reality, well, let me look at the clock here. I've got a job. You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm talking with the very brilliant John Allison, and we're talking about uh, uh, running BB&T and how the uh, principles that he uh, infused in the culture were part of the reason for success, particularly during the, uh, the meltdown of 2007, 2008. The reality-based piece of this, that gets back it. I think you avoided it because you didn't buy funnily named financial instruments That's that right. nobody really understood. Right, right. And it was pretty obvious because if you, if you knew enough about finance to do as well as you did, you'd think you'd be smart enough to understand that these instruments <laughs> were what they said they were, and you knew they weren't. Well, the other thing is you were smart, you should be smart enough to understand what you don't understand, what you don't understand, you shouldn't do. You, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, oh, I, I do. a lot of people got in trouble, but they didn't really understand. It, they did it because everybody else was doing it, right? Everybody else was doing it. And we said, no, if we don't understand it. We're pretty smart people. There may be smarter people, but we can't really understand how this works. So we're not going to do it. Well, but you know, the thing about those markets then is you didn't understand what you didn't understand. I, I didn't think I was exposed to it, but I didn't quite realize how the asset back market influenced the way a couple of our portfolio companies were getting financed. Right. And um, that was that was painful. Sure, uh, sure. But, uh, well, we all got surprises. I mean, you know. well, you know, we've got 10 principles and we're almost 30 minutes in. I'm going to jump ahead if I could. Sure, absolutely. Because the one of the most interesting ones, I think, is number nine. And by the way, I encourage everybody to get the book because the other the other principles are are, are, are very powerful and very true. Number nine is uh, self-esteem, also known as self-motivation. And you've got a, a paragraph in there, a short paragraph that you've got in bold and italicized, and you say, the following is the most important concept that will be discussed in this book and the most controversial. Please play close, very close attention. Yes. You know, uh, self-esteem is something that unfortunately is treated as a bromide and a cliche. And, and you see this in school systems where they give kids better grades than they've earned or playing soccer and they say, give everybody a trophy. That's not how self-esteem works. Self-esteem is fundamentally self-confidence in your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. So you have to earn self-esteem by how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You can't give anybody self-esteem. You can't give your children self-esteem. But you have to set principles that lead to your personal success and happiness given there are going to be obstacles in the road and there are going to be failures and, and adhere to those principles. And that's how you earn self-esteem. And, and self-esteem really requires deep reflection on uh, who you want to be and how you want to get there. Um, mm. 
Well, Arthur Brooks calls it earned success, but I think yeah. that was a little that and that gets it part way. The other aspect of self-esteem is the self part. Yes. The being willing to recognize that if you don't take care of yourself, you're not taking care of what you ought to be taking care of. And there's that confusion between taking care of yourself and being selfish. Right. Wanna, can you can you amplify? Sure. Um, in, in a certain sense, um, the word selfish has been distorted. Really, what 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 really means that you want to act in your rational, long-term self-interest, and that requires that you do things to take care of you, but you don't do things that necessarily harm other people. That that's not the way you earn your self-esteem. Yeah. Really, what you're trying to do is create as many win-win relationships as possible. And I would argue there are a tremendous number of opportunities for win-win relationships. Now, not everywhere, but there are a lot of them. And, and, and so you create self-esteem by doing things that improve the quality of your life and at the same time help other people be more successful when you can. And, and so... Uh, and business, I believe, is about creating as many win-win relationships as possible. Um, and, and really, in life, there are only two stable relationship conditions, win-win and lose-lose. Whenever you get greedy and you set up a win-lose, your spouse or whoever you're working with is going to get better and you end up on a lose-lose. And conversely, and, and this is one thing I'm really opposed to altruism, if you set up a lose-win relationship, you're going to get better and you end up in a lose-lose relationship. So you want to try to create as many win-win relationships as you can. Well, you, you, your observation, and which has been my experience, is I've never seen anybody truly successful that got there by taking advantage of other people. I mean, it may work for you know, a one-time, one-off transaction, but if you make that a pattern, you never succeed. I would agree with that. And, and, and even when somebody maybe has gotten lucky and made some money, the most unhappy people I've ever met. And that's not how you get happy. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's about creating win-win relationships wherever you can. Now, there's some people that just simply won't let you have a win-win relationship. And in, in, in that case, you just want to avoid them. But, but that's rare, actually. You know, 90% of the population is looking for opportunities to get better for themselves and, and are willing to let somebody else win in the same time. Well, the, the, the other question you put in bold in the book, which I, 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 I share your view, but I, I, I want to amplify, please ask yourself, answer the following question. Most important question you can ask yourself uh, is, do I have as much right to my life as anyone else has to theirs? And we're seeing this now with wokeness and we're seeing it with intersectionality and factions and groups and things like that. And people aren't thinking themselves as individuals, they're thinking themselves as part of this, this group and they're giving their identity up to this group. And I think they've absolutely lost an essential part of their humanity by doing that. Forget the, forget the subgroup, any group, any group. Anytime you start identifying as, as a group instead of me, I think uh, you're, you're uh, heading down the wrong path. I totally agree with that, Bill. And I think it reflects low self-esteem. I think somebody that really has legitimate self-esteem um, has recognized they have the moral right to their own life. Um, and, and if you think about it, if, if 
if nobody has the moral right to their own life, if you don't have the right to your life and I don't have the right to my life, then that's when the power lusters show up. That's yeah. when the tyrants show up because they know how to use your life, right? And since you don't have a right, and I I look at a lot of these groups, this Anna, whatever it is, Anna Five group, and the people in there don't believe they have a right to their own life. And no wonder they can be led to do terrible, destructive things because they need they need somebody to tell them the meaning of their own life. Um, so I think that that is really scary. You, you do have the moral right to your own life. That, and that doesn't mean that you take advantage of other people. That's not how you make that work. But you, if you don't recognize you have the right to your life and, and nobody has the right to their life, you're really inviting tyranny. That's, that's when eventually the Nazis show up or you know, those kind of people show up. Well, that sort of feels like where we are today. I mean, I, I, as you and I talked before we came on, on, on air, you know, this is a very scary time. We've got people giving up their identities to all these different, different groups. And I don't, I don't know where this goes. I mean, it doesn't feel like America, um, you know, and, and even the concept of, of freedom, which is an individual concept, that doesn't seem to be as valued as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. What's being taught now is not freedom what's being taught now is uh, egalitarianism or we're all equal and they're trying to, you know, there's a, you know, and as you point out in the book, you can't make everyone excellent. You can only make the excellent less excellent. You can only pull people down. You can't push them up. And so we're in this, this very uh, anti-human world, I think, where we're not, uh, we're not paying attention. I think egalitarianism as practice today is the most destructive idea in our society. It is true that everybody ought to have the same rights before the law, and, uh, but it's not true that everybody's equal. In fact, I've never met two equal people. Every person I've met is unique, different human being. We're all special. Yeah. And, and when you try to use force, which is what egalitarians do, to make people equal, it's very destructive. It's very destructive. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I can think of lots of cases where I'm not as good. I'm not as, I use the example, I'm not as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. You know, I went to, you know, I was, <laughs> it tells you my age. <laughs> uh, that's not going to surprise me. Few of us were. But there's no way to make me as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. I might can get better if I worked a lot harder, but I'm never going to be as good. You can make Michael Jordan as good a basketball player as me easy. You cut his legs off. And that's what egalitarianism <laughs> ends up being. It's about cutting legs off. And of course, that, that's why egalitarian societies eventually deteriorate into totalitarian societies because you, you, you cut the legs off of the most productive people that reduces the quality of life. People don't like that. And that's when the, when the tyrants show up. So egalitarianism inevitably leads to totalitarianism when it's taken seriously. You're watching the Bill Walton show and I'm here with John Allison and we're talking about uh, the problems with altruism and, and uh, how it can, and egalitarianism, which, which, which can have very destructive consequences. And unfortunately we're both sort of worried that that's, uh, that's so prevalent now. And it's also so prevalent in our, uh, in our textbooks and in our schools. Yes. Uh, are you doing any work now in education at the K-12 level? Are you getting involved in, and that, uh, in addition to your other work? Bill, I have been very actively involved, but I don't know how successfully in trying to promote the privatization of education. 
I do not believe that you can expect a government run system, which I believe has been corrupted a lot uh, to produce satisfactory outcomes. I think we ought to be subsidizing the students instead of the schools. And I'm for voucher programs, I'm for charter schools, I'm for the ultimate privatization education. And so, and I think if we don't do that, um, we're going to continue to have what I believe is a very secondary outcome relative to the resources we commit. And the real victims are low income kids. And you know what's ironic is a lot of low income families understand that. They know public school oh, yeah. is not good for them. It's the teachers. <laughs> and the teachers are the ones that have the clout. Of course, unfortunately, low income families then vote for politicians that support the teachers. They don't make the integrated connection that they need a different set of politicians that say, okay, it's time to privatize education and subsidize students, not schools, and create more competition, more discipline. So, John, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to get all of your ten points. We're up. so <laughs> I'm going to have. We're going, you're going to have to come back. Oh, well, I appreciate. Would you do that? that. And we'll, we'll we'll wander through because uh, I think we do need to get around to independent thinking, responsibility, creativity. Um, Productivity, profitability, honesty, integrity. I mean, if you're if you're if you're learning about this book and you're learning about John Allison for the first time, um, as soon as you finish watching this, go on Amazon and buy them because I think you'll learn you'll learn a lot. Uh, John, you're working on some movie projects now. Yeah, I'm, I'm involved with the uh, Freedom to Choose Network. We're trying to put together a show uh, for public TV on cronyism and how disruptive cronyism has been, that we don't really have a free market in the United States. A lot of the criticism that young people have, you, know, you look at the statistics, half the young people think we ought to become socialists. But if you look at their criticisms, a lot of what they're talking about is not a criticism of markets, it's criticism of government subsidies to all kinds of businesses and all kinds of people, and, and they're extremely destructive. And then uh, I've got approached by someone that's gonna try to make a, uh, a uh, fiction book out of my the financial crisis book on how the financial crisis happened and put get it on netflix because most people really do not understand they think it was greed on wall street because and there was plenty of greed on wall street but there's plenty of greed every day I mean, there's no more greed than usual uh it was government policy that caused the financial crisis and they're going to make a book out of that i mean a movie out of that well, you've also written about something that I fundamentally agree with, which is the vert, which is the importance of incentives. Yes. And getting incentives right. Yes. And what happened during the financial meltdown, the prologue up, prologue up to the financial meltdown, horrible incentives were put in place. Absolutely. And all sorts of signals sent to bankers and borrowers that, hey, guys, oh, yeah. party, party on. You know, you had was it Dodd, is it Chris Dodd or Barney Frank saying we got to put a little more gas on the fire? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now are there is there ever if if is there ever a mis, more misnamed bill than Dodd Frank? I mean both those guys just had their foot in the accelerator and shoved us right into it and then they get the bill named after to so-called protect us from this bad behavior that they uh, were uh, were inciting. Yeah, and I think they were the two, and lots of other people were responsible. They were the two most responsible people for the financial crisis. And, and ironically, the bill, it's the Dodd-Frank bill, is supposed to be to save us from another crisis. But, uh, but uh, Barney Frank, I met with multiple times saying, uh, 
and it was scary to tell you the truth. I mean, he's a very, what's scary about Frank. He's charming. He, and he's smart. Yeah. But he just, he couldn't get it. Now, Dodd's not that smart. <laughs> but Barney <laughs> Frank is a smart guy. And he absolutely couldn't get it. And, uh, you know, he finally, after the crisis happened, he admitted a lot of his policies contributed to it, which was interesting. Interesting. Well. But, uh, it. it so who get who gets? Have you already started casting for Dodd and for Frank? I know we're still working with. Uh, well, we're hoping it's Netflix or somebody like that. We're still working with them to get the, the script. Well, I, I hope you get Netflix. They could use some programming like this because they need a little bit more balance. They need a little more balance. But on the other side, from your perspective, they spend a fortune on these things. The production quality is fantastic. So uh, anyway, I'll. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wait for the premiere, although I'd, maybe I'd like to get in sooner. I, when's the casting call? I'm not sure. Uh, okay. we'll, we'll, I'll put you on the list. I'll put you on the list. Want to be the greedy banker or the good banker? <laughs> well, the villain parts are always better. Oh, they're okay. <laughs> yeah, let me, why don't you cast me as the greedy banker? That would yeah. be, be fun to play. Or the regulator. That or the regulator. Okay. The regulators are really the villains in this story. <laughs> well john allison thank you uh accomplished in in so many areas we've been talking about leadership crisis and the free market solution and uh it's a it's a great work not just on leadership but basically the personal the virtues you need to live your personal life with and so i for that reason alone i highly recommend it so john thank you Thank you, Bill. It's been fun talking to you. Okay. And thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And uh, we'll be talking next time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.